All right. Well, good evening again, guys. Let's turn in our Bibles to 1 John 3. Last week we got as far as uh, verse 15, but I'd like to back up just briefly because it's all connected uh, tonight's study with the uh, two verses we finished with last time, or three verses. So 1 John 3, verse 13, John said, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And as we said last time, when I think a lot of people read this, they see the word murderer, and right away they say, well, I've never murdered anybody. This is not really talking to me, and they move on, often not even realizing if they're new to the Bible and just starting to read it for themselves often not realizing what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, how that God doesn't just look at outward actions when uh, he says that somebody is sinning. He looks at the attitude of the heart. It's not just the outward actions of our lives that determine sin, because God looks at the heart, and he looks at what is motivating the outward action. All sin begins in the heart with a thought, a desire, a motivation. And Jesus said, if you harbor hatred in your heart for another person, even though you don't physically kill them, murder them, in the eyes of God, you've murdered them in your heart. As we said last week, when people stand before the Lord, it's not only going to be what they did, but what they wanted to do, what they would have done if they could do whatever they wanted to do, and not have to pay any price. God looks at the heart. And so that's very important that we understand that. But I bring this up because of the context. I, I want you to understand, as John states this, don't misunderstand what he's saying. He's not saying that a murderer cannot be saved. He is saying that a saved man cannot continue as a murderer. Verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And uh, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So the idea is sin in the heart again, but uh, also to understand that, you know, a person can be saved from anything. The grace of God is sufficient to save anyone from any sin. I mean, Paul said in Romans, and the Greek put it this way, where sin abounded, grace superabounded. So no matter what you've done, and I know the devil is telling people all the time, your life is too bad. God would never accept you. You've lived too bad a life, too wicked. You know, you've, you've murdered people. Why would God ever forgive you? You're beyond redemption. I told you a few weeks ago, I heard a story of a guy who was a professional assassin. Now, they didn't reveal his name and where he lived or anything. I assumed he was living in another country when this was going on. But he had over 300 people he had killed, a professional assassin. And God began to work. I, don't, I only caught the last part. I don't know exactly what happened. I know the Holy Spirit was working. And this guy finally accepted Christ. Now, he didn't say it, but I know it's true. He didn't say, I'm continuing to be an assassin because the money's good. Obviously, you know, you walk away from that completely. Um, amazing 
So nobody is beyond the grace of God. But that doesn't mean you can be, receive Christ and continue on in that sin. And I think in part, this is what John is really kind of hitting on. Why is he doing this? Because he understands, even in his day as there are today, a lot of folks who go to church and say, they've re- say they have received Christ, there are Christians, and yet nothing really has changed in their lives in the way they're living, except maybe they go to church once in a while. Uh, and maybe read the Bible occasionally. So John is wanting to uh, explain to it. He's, he wants to encourage the saints, those who are truly saved, but he also doesn't want to encourage those who are playing games. It's a fine line he's walking, but uh, the Holy Spirit, of course, is allowing him to do that. But verse 16, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, And we also ought to lay down our lives for their brethren. Now, in saying this, John no doubt had in mind the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in the upper room the night before his crucifixion. We just celebrated communion, which also took place that night, uh, hours before the cross. And uh, John, in saying verse 16, no doubt has in mind the words of Jesus, which he spoke uh, in that upper room during the Last Supper. Uh, John 13, verses 34 and 5, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love, and the Greek is fervent love for one another. Now, I realize that we kind of touched on this a few months ago, but since John brings it up, bear with me. I just want to touch on it briefly again. The word new. A new commandment I give to you. The word new there does not mean new in time, because in the Old Testament, God commanded his people to love others. It wasn't a new thing. I mean, you know, the commandment to love others uh, goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Uh, The Greek word there in verse 34 means new in the sense of not new in the sense it has just come on the scene. No, it means new in experience or fresh, something that has been around, but now is getting a facelift, getting a fresh uh, application, you might say. This command for the disciples to love one another was new because it was built on a new principle and would be energized by a new power. Of course, the power would be the Holy Spirit who would be poured out on the day of Pentecost as the church was then born. And Jesus said, I'm going to go away. This is in that same upper room discourse The night before the cross, I'm leaving soon, going away. Where I'm going, you can't come, you can't follow me. I'll come back for you. But I won't leave you alone alone like orphans. I'm going to send to you another helper, the Holy Spirit, who will abide with you forever. Then, of course, before he ascended back to the Father, after he rose from the dead, he said, look, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the power I told you about in the upper room. Because you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and then you're going to be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. This was the power that the church needed to do the work Jesus was calling them to do, all of us to do, go into all the world, preach the good news to everyone, right? We couldn't do that in our own strength, only through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's pretty obvious, but the principle, I want to just key in for a second. New principle, new power, well, the power is obvious. What is the new principle? Well, again, in verse 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Are you ready? 
as I have loved you. In the Old Testament, God had commanded his people to love others. We already talked about that. In Leviticus 19, verse 18, uh, God commanded them to love their neighbors as themselves. As themselves. Or in other words, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. What makes this commandment in John 13, 34 new is that Jesus commanded his disciples to love each other as he loved them. How did Jesus love them? How did Jesus love all of us? Well, by going to the cross and dying for us. He said in John 15, verses 12 and 13, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And so, guys, that's how uh, the Lord wants us to love one another, by going to the cross and dying, not literally, per se, but dying to self, dying to self for one another. And that's what's new about this command to love. Yes, once again, the Old Testament was filled with commandments and exhortations to love, but Jesus makes it all new. This is what the Greek word means, fresh, updated, revised. You know what I'm saying? This is what makes this now command new. It's when Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. In other words, love each other sacrificially, sacrificially. Under the Old Testament law, God commanded his people to love others once again as they love themselves or as much as. Under the new covenant, he commanded his church to love others, listen, more than we love ourselves. And again, by dying to ourselves, our desires, putting others before ourselves, their needs ahead of ourselves. First and foremost, this takes place in marriage, especially for us guys. We're commanded to love our wives as Christ loved the church. He died for the church. We're to die to self, to put her needs above our own. Uh, as Christians, we should do that for one another. As Paul said, esteem others better than yourself. Okay, esteem means to build up others, uh, make them the, the focus. Today, we have all this self-esteem teaching. And unfortunately, it's seeped into the church and has for a long time. Uh, and, and people have perverted what Jesus said when he said, love others, you know, he quoted the Old Testament, love others as you love yourself, right? Uh, but they have re redefined it as we can't love others until we first learn to love ourselves. That's not scriptural. Actually, that comes from a, a, a godless atheist named Eric Fromm. And it came into the church. He lived in the 1940s, I believe, and was trying to use the Bible to get Christian clients. So he took little scriptures, but he twisted them, as Satan often does. You can't love others until you learn to love yourself. Paul said we already love ourselves. We feed ourselves, we clothe ourselves, we take care of ourselves. We all, all do that naturally. At very least, love others like you love yourself, but Jesus puts it even higher. Love others more than you love yourself. Only spirit-filled Christians can do that. A lot of Christians who are carnal... God love them. Hopefully they're growing. And I would hope that they would love others as much as they love themselves. You know that you're really growing and maturing in your walk with the Lord when you start putting others above yourself. And that's, that really is all what Jesus was talking about. So again, verse 16, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Well, you know, God's love, agape, isn't just words and feelings. I'm not saying that it doesn't include words and feelings. But it really isn't, in its strictest definition, words and feelings, it's actions. As we have pointed out numerous times, if you study 1 Corinthians 13, the great passage that defines God's love, it's all verbs. Because all those things are actions. God's love does this and that. And God's love, you know, it's just all verbs, all things that we are to do because God's love is action-oriented, not feelings-oriented. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only begotten son. God's love is always motivated to meet needs. See, this is what Jesus taught us, and this is what John is repeating, okay? John says that true Christians love other Christians, but not just theoretically or verbally, we are to love each other actually and tangibly. Turn to James 2 real quick. Because James hit this when we studied James, we brought this out. The New Testament has a lot to say about love. And it also has quite a bit to say about showing love tangibly. It's easy to mouth the words, oh, I love you. You know, sorry you're out of work. Sorry your car blew up. Sorry you got no food in the house. I'll be praying for you. God bless you. Take, take care. Well, James talks about that. He doesn't mention the car, but okay. But James 2, verses 15 and 16, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace. Oh, shalom. God bless you. Be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Or in other words, how is that God's love and operation? How does that profit the body of Christ? How does that glorify God in this world, is the idea. Now, now I've had people say this, and when, when you teach on something like this, almost every time somebody come up to me and say, well, pastor, I, I can't help everybody. That's true. God doesn't expect you to help everybody. And we, we read this, and people think, well, is God telling me to help everyone? I can't help. I don't have the money to, and a resource to help everybody. No. God is not telling you to help everybody who has a need. But he is telling you to help those who have a need that he brings across your path and burdens in your heart for you to help them. And not everybody that has a need, uh, we, are, we need to go there and help them. Just like not every wonderful ministry we have to be involved in. We have to pray and ask the Lord to show us by his spirit to lead us. Uh, what ministries to be involved in? Um, how to help others in need. Uh, Lord, bring them to me uh, or direct me to them. But, but either way, Lord, connect us so that I know this is somebody that you want me to help. Very important, guys. Remember what it says in the book of Proverbs, chapter 19, verse 17. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. You don't have to read the Old Testament far to know that God has got a real heart for the disadvantaged. The orphan, the widow, the poor, the uh, stranger, those who are disadvantaged. And God has a real heart. In fact, here in other places, God says, look, if you will treat 
the poor kindly and provide them with what they need. They want, need a meal, you give it to them. They need some clothes, you give them to them. It is like you are giving them to me and I will pay you back. Well, didn't Jesus say that? Uh, you know, what, whatever you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do to me. Remember one thing, guys. God's love, and we're, that's what we're talking about, not our human love, God's love, is kind, generous, merciful, compassionate, which means it helps people in need. Now, that doesn't mean we reward laziness or irresponsibility either, though. Okay? You remember what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10? For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall they eat. Oh, but that sounds so harsh. I mean, is that really love? Well, is it really love that somebody sponges off of others in the body of Christ and doesn't take their responsibility seriously? You know, sometimes we have to apply tough love. Now, Paul's not talking about somebody who can't work because of sickness, injury, handicap. He's not talking about those folks. Uh, nor is he condemning those who want to work and are trying their best to find a job out there every day, pounding the pavement, putting their resumes out, and, and really doing their best while they pray for God to open a door. God bless them. You need some help? I'll be happy to help you because you're, you're out there trying to get a job. What Paul is doing is he's condemning those who won't work won't work and, and and please you know people i've heard people over the years who say yeah oh i want to work I'm, I'm just praying and waiting on god to open a door well how about you open the door get off the couch put the video game down and get out there and do something too often people use that you know oh, oh i really want to work i just haven't been able to find anything. I remember listening to a pastor friend of mine, California, Calvary guy, great guy, got a beautiful facility and all. And he was talking at a teaching how that from time to time a young guy will show up on their doorstep, uh, you know, asking for some, you know, food or asking for some money, you know. And uh, what uh, Pastor Jack tells them is, look, we have uh, a lot of uh, flower beds that need to be weeded, uh, grass that needs to be cut. I'll uh, tell you what, you, you go to work for a few hours and uh, we'll make sure you have some food and maybe put you up in a hotel for the night. He says, not once in all the years I've been doing this has anybody ever taken me up on that. Not once. Because people talk the talk, but honestly, uh, many people are just lazy and they know you're good-hearted people as Christians and they want to just take advantage. So we have no patience for that. And, you know, anyone who thinks that's unloving to turn a person like that away, well... Uh, I'll stand before God someday. But, but let me just say this. It has always been my personal policy and our church's policy to err on the side of grace. In other words, if I'm not sure, or if we're not sure as leaders, if somebody's financial situation, hardship, uh, has been caused by their laziness or irresponsibility in some way, if I'm not sure, and we'll try to call, you know, is there anybody we can call to, to corroborate your story? Oh, many times I've done this, okay? Uh, oh, <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, the ones who are trying to game you, oh, no, I, I don't have any parents that are both dead. Well, how about a brother or sister? Oh, no, I'm an only child. Well, how about some friends that could vouch for you? Oh, I have no friends. That, yeah. So what, you just materialize? You have no, <laughs> out of thin air? You, you got no, you know. But, 
But, you know, if, if I can't determine, you know, if I'm not sure if they're in this situation because of their laziness or, or uh, irresponsibility, I'll go ahead and help them. I'd rather err on the side of grace. And I'll tell you this, even if I know they've been irresponsible and lazy and they have no, no food and there's children involved, I don't care how lazy you've been, we'll, we'll give you whatever you need just for those kids. We've done that before, too. So we always err on the side of grace. I'm just blessed to be a part of a church that has been so generous over the years. Uh, many, many times. I just bumped into a, a, a lady who used to come to our church years ago. We were at the hospital, Cindy and I, visiting uh, somebody who's in the hospital. And she happens to know this person real well. And so she showed up. And uh, you know, she and her family came to the church for years before they decided to go uh, to a church a little closer to the house because it's kind of a far drive. And uh, I remember that um, years and years ago when she was attending this church, her husband decided to, he was not saved, decided to just abandon them for a whole year. Uh, he was gone, lived with some other gal. And I didn't even know some of the needs, and no, nobody told me what was going on. But uh, found out later somebody bought her a fridge, another person bought her a stove, uh, somebody paid our rent. This is what I love, the body of Christ ministering to itself. And we didn't have to do a pledge drive. We didn't have to say, you know, who's going to stand up? Who's going to give a hundred? Stand up so we can... No, just, you know, let the Holy Spirit move in people's hearts to lay down their heart to give, to help. How many times have I come up to the podium before church has started? I see an envelope and there's somebody's name on it or, or a family name. And I, I know there's money, and I can tell. And I have the privilege of just handing it to the family, and anonymous. person didn't want any accolades, didn't want any recognition. See, that, that to me is the love of Christ in, in operation. When the love of self is in operation, it wants recognition. It wants to, you know, blow the trumpet when they give. We don't tolerate that. We don't cater to that, okay? But... Um, I just thank God for our church. None of us are wealthy. I read a statistic years ago that the biggest, most generous givers in the body of Christ are not the wealthy ones. It's the middle class to the lower middle class, folks that don't have much. But what they have, they want to share. So verse 19, And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Now, when John says, and by this we know that we are of the truth, in other words, this is how we know we're genuinely saved, actually he's referring uh, back to what he just said in verses 17 and 18, talking about tangible demonstrations of love towards other Christians in need. That really demonstrates that we are, are of the truth, we're saved, that we're saved. Uh, as I got in my notes here, uh, tangible demonstrations of love towards other Christians in need shows that someone is a Christian indeed. Tangible uh, demonstrations of, of love towards others in need, Christians especially, demonstrates that we know him for real. We're genuine. Once again, guys, loving Christians tangibly is something John continually points to as an evidence that they are genuinely saved. Uh, I'm not sure if anyone in the room knows uh, who Gail Irwin is. Uh, Gail has come out um, to speak at our men's retreat years ago. Uh, he goes all over the world uh, teaching, preaching. He's a wonderful man of God. 
And uh, he tells a wonderful story. Now we're talking about how we know we're saved because of the love we have for other Christians. And he, he tells a wonderful story about a man he knew when he was a boy. Of course, I'm sorry. Yeah, the man, he was already a man, this guy, when Gail was a young boy. And he knew him. He knew of this guy in, from town. And he said the man's name was Jake. And Gail said that Jake was the meanest, drunkest man in town. He said, and I quote, he would come to church from time to time, but that was only to beat up the elders. Yikes. One Wednesday night, Jake came to church, but not to beat anyone, anybody up. Remarkably, Jake gave his life to Jesus. He walked down the aisle of the little church and kneeled down at the altar. The next night, there was another meeting at the church. And the pastor asked if anyone wanted to share what God was doing in their lives. Jake stood up and said, I have something to say. Last night when I came here, I hated you people. Heads nodded in agreement. <laughs> but something happened to me, and I don't understand this, but tonight I love you. End quote. What can you say about that? That is a divine, supernatural love that the Holy Spirit plants in the hearts of every believer a love for other believers. And as John tells us, it's a wonderful assurance that we are born again. When we first started 1 John, we mentioned how that John wrote his gospel. He wrote his gospel that people might read it and be saved. Remember at the end of his gospel, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, these things I have written to you that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John wrote his gospel that a person might be saved. He wrote his first epistle so that we might know that we are saved. Because this is something the devil will, you know, again, we've talked about this many times. The devil wants to keep people from getting saved. That's his whole deal. To keep a person away from God's truth, his light, he wants them to remain in darkness, deceived, condemned, so that when they die, they're eternally separated from God. But if he can't keep somebody away from the truth and they get saved, the next thing he wants to do is he wants to somehow condemn them, that they lose the assurance of their salvation. Because no Christian is going to live like a victorious Christian who doesn't think they are a Christian from day to day or week to week. So John understands, look, our mission is to see people come to Christ. Once they come to Christ, now I need to help them to understand that they have assurance. Because you'll never be all that God wants you to be if you don't know you're saved, if you don't have the assurance. You know, if he wrote this epistle for that reason. And 1 John 5, 13, he states it clearly. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. When I was growing up in the Roman Catholic Church, they taught that anyone who says they have eternal life, past tense, is anathema, cursed to the lowest hell. Catholic theology says that not even the Pope knows he's saved. Not even the Pope. If the Pope himself said he knows he has eternal life before he dies, he's anathematized. That's sad. 
it's sad that a person could live their life. And, and, the, and the real tragic thing is you have to keep working in the Catholic Church as a Catholic to keep accruing little installments of grace by going to Mass, praying the Rosary, keeping the feast days, and so on. You, you accrue these little installments of grace, which they define as works. Grace means a gift. The Catholic Church, they're not the only ones. They define grace as a work. Now, you can read Romans 4, where Paul says that's ridiculous. Either we're saved by works or we're saved by grace. You can't be saved by both. The tragic thing is, if the church would let people know to get saved, you have to have 2,000 good works over the course of your life. Well, you know, you meticulously want to count those works, and uh, or maybe 50,000 works over the course of your life. Uh, and if you're like, you know, you know that your life is coming to an end, you got, you know, another 15, 20 to go before you can really have eternal life. You work hard, right? But of course, they don't know. So you just have to keep working, working, working. And when you die, you find out maybe you didn't measure up. Maybe you didn't have enough. What a blessing, guys, that we are saved by grace. The Bible teaches us clearly. We know it. We've embraced it because we have studied his word. It's a gift, not the result of works, lest any should boast. I receive a gift. I don't earn a gift. I receive it by just receiving Jesus into my heart as my Lord and Savior. And when I do that, I know I have passed from death to life, and I will never come into condemnation, never go to hell. Jesus himself said that. So assurance, though, guys, is vitally important in the lives of all of God's children. Why? Because it's essential for victory, for fruitfulness, and for our service to the Lord again. We cannot be all that God wants us to be if we're always wrestling with how I lost my salvation this week because I did this or that. Or I haven't measured up in some way. So I know I've lost it. Some churches teach this. Some people are getting saved every week. How sad. Because that's what their church teaches them. Perfect love casts out fear. And that perfect love came from God to me, not me to God. We love him because he first, what? Loved us. And that love was perfect. That love was in his son. And when I accepted Christ, I was placed in Christ. And the Father doesn't even see me anymore. He sees Jesus. Jesus is perfect. He is sinless. He is blameless. And because I am in him, I've been accepted by the Father in the beloved one. I don't have to work. Jesus did the work. I don't have to measure up. Jesus is perfect. And that's all the Father sees. When you understand that, it frees you from the tyranny of legalism, which the devil is always trying to get us back under, because only then can he condemn us for not measuring up, right? Now, here's the thing. We must be sure that we are saved. I mean, we, the, the Bible in the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament admonished us in numerous places to make sure that we're saved. Just take spiritual inventory of our lives to make sure that we were genuinely in the faith. I'll read you one, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Uh, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Well, I'm in Christ. He's in me, right? Test yourself. Uh, to see whether you're in the faith. Uh, unless indeed you are disqualified. Uh-oh. People read that and they what, here's what they read. 
Okay, examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you have forfeited your salvation or lost your salvation? That's not what the Greek word means for disqualified. It's a word that means literally having been proven worthless or of no value. In other words, they proved that their faith was of no value, their so-called faith. Oh, I believe. Okay, well, so does the devil and his demons. There comes a time when somebody who professes to know Jesus, well, as Paul said to Titus, many profess to know God, but in works they deny him. Their lives have not changed. There's no fruit. And so they, over a course of time, prove that their faith is worthless. It's valueless. It's not real. Neither is their so-called salvation. They're not a genuine Christian. Now, how do you examine yourself? Well, there's ways to do that. I, let me just give you one. I think it's just very simple and where you start, okay, in my mind. You can come up here and tell me what you do or what you've done. I think by this time we ought to know, okay? I used to do this a lot when I was a young Christian because I was terrified I wasn't real, okay? Uh, but after a while, you know, you realize, look, this is not a flash-in-the-pan thing. This is not some passing fad. I'm in it for the long time. I've been a Christian 41, 42 years. Uh, I don't think I'm still on probation, although I might be. But, but I, I think it's pretty well nailed down that I, I know Jesus. Not perfect, but I think it's put to rest any doubts that I'm you know, not really a, a Christian. But, but here, how do you examine yourself? Um, well, let me just say this. I think the main way, the first way you do that is by examining, listen, your current life and comparing it with your life before you prayed to receive Christ as your Savior. I mean, is there a change in the way you approach life now, in the way you think, uh, in what you value? Uh, and most importantly, has your life changed in the way you're living it since you prayed to receive Christ? I mean, guys, uh, I remember one of the gentlemen that came out to our men's retreat years ago, uh, Wes Bentley, he's a phenomenal ministry in Africa, and West gave his testimony how that before he got saved, he was a communist, he was a liberal, he was a drinker, a womanizer, everything else, into money, had a six-figure job back in the 70s or 60s, a worldly guy, and once he got saved, then all changed. He became a conservative Christian, uh, somebody who didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't, you know, went to church, uh, wound up driving a car that second gear didn't work. So, you know, it was just a junker. Happy as could be. His whole life changed. His whole worldview changed. What he valued in life changed. Right? I mean, come on, you guys, we were all there at one time. I know what I, where my heart was at. What I thought life was all about, making money and, and having nice things and whatever. And then God saved Cindy and I. And our whole approach to life changed. The way we looked at our worldview changed, but the way we looked at life, how we thought, how we talked, everything changed. And guys, that's the question we need to ask ourselves. Is there a change in the way you approach life now that you've received Christ? I mean, someone who is genuinely saved will undergo a transformation, again, in how they think, how they talk, how they live, with whom they associate. 
it will be an un together those things become an unmistakable testimony that you are saved and being transformed by the spirit of god from the inside out because he lives inside of you people can argue with our theology all day long they can't argue with a transformed life and that really is the most powerful testimony isn't it in fact people will say you know a lot of christians talk the talk they they know their theology but there's no love there's no kindness it's a lot of Phariseeism, looking down on folks that are in sin, not reaching down to help them up in Christ. Guys, this self-examination is vital because there are many attending churches across our country who think, listen, that as long as they believe with their heads the facts of the gospel, that makes them a Christian. That makes them a Christian. And yet Jesus said that we would know true Christians from false Christians by their fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. What is fruit? Well, I'll start with Galatians 5, verses 22 and 3, the fruit of the Spirit. Now James, repeating the Lord's sentiment, using different words, put it this way, James 2, verses 17 and 26, he said, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, now, James is not teaching a salvation that is faith plus works. He is teaching salvation that is faith produces works. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And the works he's talking about is the fruit of the spirit. But just yeah, hanging out in church, hanging out with Christians, reading the Bible, worshiping the Lord, praying. Those things don't get us saved. They are a fruit of our salvation. Once we're connected to Christ, the Spirit begins to flow through Him into our lives, and the result is fruit. It happens naturally by, just, by virtue of just being connected to Jesus in salvation. I mean, go, the things I love to do now, I didn't like to do before I got saved. Go to church, read the Bible, pray, worship God, say praise the Lord. No, I didn't, none of that appealed to me. I did go to church once in a while, but it was my duty, not my joy. And now people look at my life and go, I don't want to be a Christian because you've got to go to church. You've got to pray. You've got to read the Bible. No, 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 you don't get it. I don't have to. I get to. These things don't save me or make me a Christian. They just prove that I am one. Because something happened inside 42 years ago. And it's still working today. And uh, it's the Holy Spirit who lives in me because I accepted Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. Now, listen to me, though. Listen to me. Here's the thing about assurance. Again, very important, that you know you're saved. The devil can get you to doubt you're saved. Your whole walk is torpedoed. All your effectiveness for, for Jesus is, is out the window. He knows that. We have to know it. Here's the thing about assurance. It can be neutralized or circumvented through legalism legalism many pastors and church leaders in their zeal to see their people walking with god and bearing fruit listen place their folks their sheep under the law in other words they tell them that unless they are constantly doing good works you know going to church again reading the bible giving money to god that's a big one in some of these churches you know you're not even saved unless you give money to God, you know, and, and they really hit on that theme. 
But, uh, you know, then they had their, their, each one has their little list, okay? So you got to, you know, go to church, read the Bible, give money to God. Also, you got to, you can't smoke, you can't drink, you can't go to movies, you can't dress inappropriately, however they define that. Girls, you have to have your skirts so far below your knees and uh, guys can only wear your hair so long. And so the, the list varies from group to group, but this is the idea. It's what, what the holiness movement uh, has been built upon. Uh, all the do's and don'ts, right? And uh, this is how, what they, what they emphasize, right? When a church is fed that kind of um, doctrine, and that's the constant emphasis, works. And of course, the corresponding condemnation that often accompanies when people don't live up to the standards the church has set. Well, it robs them of the assurance of their salvation and the joy that comes from the knowledge that, listen, they are saved, sustained, and eternally secured by God's grace, not their good works. Read Galatians 3, verses 1 to 3 again. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now going to be made perfect in the flesh? O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should so soon leave the simplicity of the gospel to follow another God? Well, who has bewitched you? How about the devil? Back in 1 John 3, verse 19 again. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him for if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Sometimes a Christian who does go to a church that teaches grace and not law, sometimes even they can still battle with condemnation. I mean, we teach grace every week here at Calvary. But there are still many folks in our church from time to time that will battle with condemnation. Why is that? Well, it's often the result of them having a tender heart, see, having a, a tender heart toward God, and uh, coupled with a tendency to be too hard on themselves, you know. They never feel they're measuring up. Maybe they had a dad who always put them down. You're stupid. You're a loser. You'll never amount to anything. That gets pounded in your head enough as a kid. You grow up to, as an adult thinking that you're no good. You bring this into your Christianity many times. People bring this baggage in. So they have a tender heart toward God. They love the Lord. They want to please the Lord. But coupled with the fact that they don't feel like they, they can do anything, they're stupid and worthless and, and a total failure, this opens the door for Satan to really, uh, really attack with condemnation. The devil knows, uh, you know, I don't believe he can read the heart, but he certainly can see from, you know, studying a person's life what they're wrestling with. A Christian that is still young in the faith, is often susceptible to the devil's condemnation. Uh, he knows that. That's why he targets the new Christians, I think, more than any others. Because they haven't had time to grow in their faith and knowledge of the word. They're still a baby Christian. And as such, ignorant to what God's word actually teaches about grace. Which again allows the devil to use their tender but immature heart to condemn them. And listen, while they cannot lose their salvation if they're truly saved, they can begin to lose the assurance of their salvation due to a heart, their conscience, that keeps condemning them. Now, John tries to comfort these folks, okay, by saying that if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. 
Let me just say this before we get into that, okay? Let me just say there's a difference between spirit-directed conviction and Satan-directed condemnation. God's conviction, when it's an operation, you'll know it because it drives us to Him. It's all you can think about is getting right with God, getting into His presence, right? It's all you can think about. It's just burning in your heart. You want to make this right. God's, uh, God's conviction drives us to Him, drives us to get our lives right with Him when we've sinned. Whereas Satan's condemnation, listen, drives us away from God. It motivates us to run and hide because God is angry with us. God now hates us. That's what condemnation is all about. Now, does the Bible anywhere say that God has that kind of feeling for a child of his that fails? Somebody has said, if God loves us, loved us so much before we were ever saved that Christ died for us, what do you, how do you think he's going to treat us now that we're his kids when we fail? But see, if you don't know the word, then you are susceptible to the devil's lies and his condemnation. Listen, God's conviction is tied to our conscience, which in turn is connected to his laws, which he has written in our hearts. And guys, not just in our hearts as believers, but in all people's hearts. Turn to Revelation, Romans 2. Romans 2. Let me just read to you out of uh, Romans 2, verses 14 and 15, out of the NLT 2, which reads, Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts, for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right, either accuse or excuse. That's how the New King James puts it. Guys, conviction is triggered through guilt. Guilt being the alarm system that God has put in place in our hearts to warn us when we have violated one or more of his commandments. When Christians or unbelievers violate one of God's laws, they feel guilty. Now, there are those working very hard to tell us all guilt is harmful. All guilt is detrimental. We should work very hard as a society to alleviate all guilt because it's the basis for neuroses and uh, mental disorders and so on. It's terrible. It's toxic. Well, misplaced guilt, misguided guilt, is definitely toxic and wrong. It's wrong for a woman whose husband beats her up all the time. It's wrong for her to feel guilty because she's not a better wife because if I was a better wife, you wouldn't be beating me up. That's sick. That's twisted. That's demonic. But when we violate something God has said, one of his commandments, and we feel guilty, that's good. Because then conviction kicks in, hopefully. Where you want to get it right with God. I realize, oh, I've done something wrong. I feel that guilt. I know I did something wrong. And the conviction starts. Well, make it right. Come to me. Don't, don't let it go any further. Uh, come to me. Get it right. David didn't do that. He compounded his guilt uh, when he concocted this plan to have uh, Bathsheba's husband come home from the uh, battlefield. And you know the story. And uh, finally, he couldn't get this guy to get drunk and go home and sleep with his wife so that he thought that David's child in his wife's womb was his child. So David had to send him back to the front lines with a letter from the king himself saying, put Uriah in the uh, front of the line, heat of the battle. At one point, pull back to the archers from the wall, take him out. 
What did Joab, David's general, think about that? But he obeyed orders. Uriah died. You don't want to go there. You don't want to compound your sin. When you violate something God has said, and right away the guilt comes, and then the conviction, get it right immediately. But again, conviction is triggered through guilt. Guilt being the alarm system God has put in place to warn us when we have violated one of his commandments. And um, as I just said, when this alarm system sounds, when guilt kicks in, telling us we have crossed a line, we have violated something God has forbidden us from doing. When that happens and guilt starts, most people can't live with guilt. It's just too difficult. Most people today don't want to repent either, though. So what do you do then? Okay, because guilt is all about you getting your life right with God. That's the option that God wants you, you know. But if you don't like the way guilt feels, but you don't want to repent of your sin, what options have you got left? Well, as Paul said in Romans, you either justify your sin somehow, or you excuse it in some way, or what's even worse, you blame somebody else for the wrong you have done. Now, there are people that have done this so often it becomes reflexive. Whenever they violate a commandment of God and guilt starts, they immediately pass the blame, justify, excuse, blame somebody else or uh, uh, accuse somebody else. Here's the problem. After you do that for a while, your conscience becomes, you know, the voice inside of you grows weaker and dimmer and, and softer until it stops warning you altogether. Now you can sin and have no conscience to bother you, no guilt. That sounds the alarm, right? When a person does that, when they come to that point, what they do is they short-circuit their conscience and render it inoperative. When a person effectively turns off their conscience, guys, they are what we would say is flying blind morally and will eventually crash and burn. It's only a matter of time. And again, the way you switch off your conscience is to ignore it by justifying why what you're doing isn't wrong. After all, everyone's doing it. And by the way, it just feels so right. How could something that feels so right be wrong? Because the devil has shifted us from absolute truth the subjective feelings as a basis for truth. In fact, as we said a couple Sundays ago, it isn't even a matter of absolute truth. It's, it's your truth and my truth. You know? Whatever you think is truth is truth for you. Whatever you don't, it may not be my truth, but it's your truth. We need to respect each other's idea of truth and live up to it so that we live authentically to our own system of right and wrong. Amazing what we're seeing today, and um, all based on feelings. And you know what happens when you have people who have so, um, they have so violated their conscience in the sense that they don't, they justify, excuse, blame. Again, they eventually turn it off. It becomes inoperable, broken, disconnected. Eventually, as Paul put it in 1 Timothy 4, verse 2, their conscience becomes insensate, as Paul put it, seared as with a hot iron. We've talked about this. You take a hot branding iron and you touch it to your skin, it burns like crazy. 
And when it heals, you try touching it, if you can't feel anything. It's burned the ner nerve endings. It's destroyed the nerve endings. That part of your body is now insensate to touch. A conscience can be affected like that. You keep sinning, you keep sinning, you keep sinning, justifying, excusing, blaming. After a while, your conscience becomes like a piece of flesh that has been so burned by a hot iron, it no longer warns you. There's, no, there's nothing that, you know, it's dead. And that's the worst place a person can ever get to. Because once a person gets to that place where they no longer have a conscience, they are able to do the most horrific things and sleep well at night because nothing bothers them. I told you about after World War II when they started to arrest some of these SS guards. And they began to interview these men who had been a party to killing millions of Jewish people. The interviewers thought that they were going to talk to literal monsters because only a monster could kill other human beings like they did. They were shocked to discover that these men, for the most part, were very likable, seemingly well-balanced, good fathers, grandfathers, had loving families. They couldn't initially figure out what in the world was going on until they realized that they had turned off their consciences because of the ideology they had embraced. That Jewish people were a scourge on the earth and were doing humanity a service. We have to get rid of the plague, get rid of the cancer called the Jews. So I'm serving the greater good. I'm not a monster, I'm a hero. And you don't think it can, can't happen again today? Think again. There are people in our country right now who think that certain people, Christians especially, are a cancer in this land. If the right people get into power, you're going to start seeing your rights be taken away rather quickly because now it's not a matter of we disagree. Now it's a matter, it's a religion to these folks. They're stamping out evil. And I'm telling you, once a person has conditioned himself to think that killing another human being is doing God's service, they can do anything and not better than I. They can line us up, shoot us down, and go have, uh, you know, an ice cream cone or something. It doesn't affect them. We're seeing it in our society as a whole already. The more people in our society do evil more and more and justify it, well, the more society becomes wicked, rebellious toward God, and all those that God has placed in authority over them, starting with their parents, teachers, police, officers, and so on. Uh, we're seeing that today. One of, the, one of the things that saddened my heart so much this, this summer was when some of the uh, teenagers in New York were throwing buckets of water on police officers. And they were just walking away, you know, and uh, total disregard for authority, you know, mockery. And then as one of these young guys, 17, 18 years old, dumped a bucket of water on a female cop, here comes a little guy, had to be about six years old, takes a bucket and throws some water on the cops too. This is what some people are teaching the next generation. Because a rebellious heart 
justifies why some people are evil and it's okay for me to disrespect them or even to hurt them. What do we want? Dead cops. When do we want them? Now. Uh, you know, what did the saying go, Black Lives Matter, we're repeating, you know, pigs on a blanket, fry them like bacon. These folks invited to the White House by our former president. We, we are in a very lawless time. The only thing that will save us is revival, which I pray for, and hopefully you do too. But Paul the Apostle did say that this kind of thing would uh, escalate in the last days, just prior to Jesus' coming, I don't have time to read it to you, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 4. You can read it for yourself. Uh, getting back to what John is saying about Christians uh, who try to do what's right, but their hearts still condemn them. Uh, he said, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things, and I'm going to have to leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, good reason to come back. This is a very important statement, by the way, by John. Uh, everything he says <laughs> under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is important. But this is especially important because the devil tries to condemn believers in, who love the Lord, tries to use condemnation to, to take them out, neutralize their walk, their effectiveness. And John says, look, you have to understand something. If your heart condemns you because you're weak in the faith, you're immature, you don't know what the Word of God says, you're too hard in yourself, God's bigger than your heart. God knows what's in your heart. He knows you want to do what's right. He'll honor the desire, even if the actions fall short. So we'll come on back next time. We will look at that as we continue in John, 1 John 3 and get into chapter 4. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. It is truth and it leads us in the darkness, Lord, because it's light. And Lord, we're living in perilous times. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Uh, they're rebellious. They're, they're haters of God, lovers of pleasures, rebellious towards parents and authority. Lord, open their eyes to your truth. The devil has taken them captive to do his will. Lord, please open their eyes. Bring a great awakening, a revival. Pour your spirit afresh on our church, Lord, that we would rise up in the power of the spirit to be more than conquerors. Lights in the darkness, Lord, that people would be drawn to the light. We just thank you, Lord. Father, we ask all this in Jesus' name and ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask it in our Savior's precious name. Amen.